This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So for those of you who are just tuning in now, if you, if you take a look over at Tim Kroll's uh, little square, you can see AZC's side yard. I think Bruce has already introduced this. But we have a very special occasion happening today. It is a initiation ceremony, um, an ordination ceremony that is happening at AZC this afternoon at 5 p.m. If you would like to attend, you can uh, register on, online and get the link. So today I wanted to talk about what, you know, what this is all about. What is this ceremony? What are these rituals? And, uh, you know, what are these people up to? This sounds like a cult. <laughs> well, guess what? It is. It's a 2,500 year old cult called Buddhism. And taking precepts, uh, receiving precepts, take giving and receiving. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, the practice of uh, receiving precepts has been happening for over 2,500 years within this tradition, in the Buddhist tradition. So today I want to talk a little bit about what that means. What does it mean? And also just, um, you know, I think throughout the talk, I would encourage everyone to think about what it means for yourself, whether you've taken the precepts or received precepts or, or haven't. What does it mean? To observe them. A couple, I guess it was, I don't know, maybe it was one of the last Dharma talks, I think. I think it, my memory serves. One of the last Dharma talks that happened at the center, so sometime before March, I think I remember saying something in a talk about how AZC, how I'd like to see AZC as a, uh, as a bodhisattva factory, <laughs> as a place where we grow bodhisattvas. Not that they can't grow elsewhere, of course, but as a Dharma center, I think of that as the primary responsibility of, uh, of our center is to grow enlightening beings and have them go out into the world and do their enlightened activity among everybody, among people all over. Just as a, a brief aside, this question, you know, what is a bodhisattva? Right? I think the primary question that the Bodhisattva asks is, how do I live this life, this precious human life, as, you know, in a way that is of benefit to all beings? And this is, uh, you know, this is bringing up our, our big mind, right? Because our small mind wants to make distinctions and say, you know, well, these beings over here <laughs> and not those beings over there, right? But the Bodhisattva, that's not Bodhisattva practice. Bodhisattva practice is to ask the question, how to live for the benefit of all beings, right, without exception. So in this time, and maybe this is true all times, maybe people have been saying, oh, these days, these days are horrible. <laughs> uh, these days are so challenging. And maybe, maybe every generation says this, but now I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm gonna say it. <laughs> these are scary times. And there's a lot of polarization in our world not just in, you know, in this country, but throughout the entire world. And people are anxious and afraid and fearful. And, you know, this is the time when bodhisattvas, you know, make themselves available. If only to hear the cries of the world, but also to lend a hand 
to do what is of benefit. And what that means, you know, how do we know? How do we know what is of benefit? Right? How do you know what's of benefit? Is it a matter of looking it up in some big rule book? Do you have that book? I'd love to see it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not actually, it's not actually about um, following rules so much. And I'll get to that a little bit more when we talk about what the ceremony is about. Ultimately, I think this question, you know, the question, the whole question, the whole endeavor of our practice is this question of how do we live our life fully, authentically, given all circumstances, whether they're circumstances that are to our liking, where it makes it easy, or circumstances that are challenging and difficult, right? Even more so in difficult circumstances, how do we live our lives? You know, how do we remain or maybe not remain, how do we find groundedness and stability? How do we become steady? Right? This is what we do when we sit zazen. And it's interesting, I think, um, yeah, when we sit zazen, we, um, well, actually, when we sit zazen, usually we do it with training wheels. You know, we set aside a place that's quiet and uh, free of, uh, fire ants. I hope the people sitting in the side yard are not plagued by fire ants right now. But we, we try and find a, you know, a suitable space to sit. And then we give over to our sitting, right? We, we allow Zazen to do us, as opposed to us doing Zazen. Right? And this is basically what we do when we receive precepts as well. Right? Maybe precepts is Zazen. Maybe Zazen is precepts. Right? We give over, we give over our small mind, our small kind of narrow, dualistic, concept-ridden, frightened, anxious mind. We may give that over. And sometimes people think of it as giving it over to Buddha, giving it over to Dharma, giving it over to Sangha, right? The three things we take refuge in. So Zazen, when we, when we sit Zazen with training wheels, it means that we go to a space like the Zen Center like the little, uh, you know, the sitting space that we created in our, in our home, with a little, maybe with a little altar, right? With a nice blank wall to, to, uh, to gaze upon while we're sitting. And then we give over to watching carefully without trying to control, but watching our mind, right? And getting, really getting to know what our minds are up to. And it starts, you know, with Zazen, it just starts with observing observing, observing, and we may find, oh, my mind just, you know, coughed up this thing that's really disturbing. And then we observe the disturbance, right? And new ideas pop up. So we may find, we just start by observing our thoughts and observing our body, observing whatever's happening both inside and out. And when we, as we observe clearly without an agenda other than, you know, waking up, as we observe, we start maybe noticing patterns, right? And rather than come up with our 10-step plan of how to improve ourselves, once we've decided, oh, here are my patterns that are not so wholesome, right? We may find the impulse to like, you know, improve ourselves, right? And, uh, you know, and that it's nothing wrong with, you know, the desire for improvement. However, um, that's not where the, you know, that's not where the juice is in some sense. Right? That's not where we want to stay. We'd want to stay in 
the doing mind that's trying to fix us because ultimately there's actually nothing wrong with us, right? Ultimately we are Buddha. We are life itself. We are Buddha living. Sometimes it gets covered over, right? I, I keep saying something about the small self, right? But you can imagine the Buddha nature oftentimes is described as the vast sky. And sometimes it's clouded over, right? We don't get to see the full moon because of clouds. It's still there, but we may not be able to access it, right? So oftentimes this is what sitting is, you know, is getting in touch with, it's letting all that stuff, you know, the monkey mind, the jumpy, graspy mind, it's letting that be, letting it go, right? Without picking it up. Returning to stillness, returning to silence. Right? In this way, oftentimes when we sit zazen, we, you know, as I mentioned, we sit in front of a blank wall. I think people sitting at home may not be doing that so much, but it's sometimes very helpful to sit with a blank, uh, you know, facing a blank wall. Now, why is that? because you can't blame anything in your visual field, <laughs> right? You're staring at a blank wall. So whatever's coming up for you, the only thing to blame is your own mind. You can't be like, oh, this thing caused this issue with me. And you know, it's, it's actually like just kind of allowing everything to come to stillness so that we can really see what's going on inside. And then, uh, and then you know, in furthering this question, well, how, how do I take up living a life for the benefit of all beings, it, got, it moves a little bit from my own individual practice into community practice, into, uh, okay, I've got this, you know, this container. <laughs> Maybe you feel like this container is all, you know, once you get this under control, everything else will work out. But that's when you go out and practice with other people. <laughs> because then, um, you know, as joyful as it can be, it can also be very painful. And we see this playing out now in our political world, right? How painful, how painful it is. So how do we live a life of, uh, of vowing to save all beings? You know, how do we do that? So one way is with you know, study, studying and taking up into one's life, into one's own heart, precepts, you know, precept practice. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening to this afternoon in the ceremony. Um, but basically, I'll just mention now, there are 16 precepts. Three, the first three are actually the refuges, taking refuge in Buddha, our awakened nature taking refuge in Dharma, the truth, and then taking refuge in Sangha, which is, um, you know, could be the community of people who practice together, could be a wider Maha Sangha, and I would suggest it can also include all beings, all sentient beings, uh, you know, the widest version of Sangha, right? Maybe the most challenging to practice with. Right? Maybe it's easiest to practice with a small group of people who are very like-minded. Right? And it, sometimes it's necessary to band together with people who are like-minded right? for sustenance. And then you, um, you, know, you go forth. Right? So these, and then the, those are the, uh, the refuges. But then 
the next three are the pure precepts. I'll speak a little bit more about that. And then the final 10 are what are sometimes called the grave precepts or the prohibitory precepts. In terms of this ceremony, sometimes you know, we call it jukai, and there's a little bit of confusion about whether this ceremony is a jukai ceremony or if it's something else. And I just wanted to say a few words about that. Jukai literally means, so the Jew is literally like giving and receiving. The kai is precepts. The Jew, the giving and receiving, there's a way in which uh, I think Bruce mentioned that the people who are uh, receiving precepts today, there are four, uh, four people. We're going to call them, you know, initiates or ordinands. I think in the, in the ceremony notes, they're called ordinands. <laughs> but those four people are, you know, have been preparing for this ceremony for quite some time. And what they've been doing is they've been studying the precepts, putting them into action, discussing their, their practice with other people who are also committed to putting these precepts into practice. They have also been sewing. They've been sewing uh, Buddha's robe, um, this, this thing right here, which is, I guess, a, a miniature version of the okesa, of the Buddha's robe that uh, from the time of the Buddha, you know, there uh, has been stitched together. In olden days, it was stitched together by rags, using rags that were washed, you know, sometimes rags that were dug up at charnel grounds, right? And uh, those rags were washed you know, and then dyed, and then cut, and then sewn together to make a robe. And every single one of the people who is taking the precepts today has gone through that process of sewing their robe. One of the things that maybe people don't know that when they people sew their own robe like this, every single stitch on the robe is done with taking refuge. So when you stick your needle in for the stitch, you say, Namu. You pull through kie all the way through butsu. Namu kie butsu. Each stitch. This is Japanese for I take refuge in Buddha. And sometimes people take refuge in Dharma and Sangha with their stitches as well. But you can imagine how many times do you take refuge in creating a rakasu? Right. The process of sewing one's rakasu is also, I think, it's not a solitary practice. Ideally, it's a practice that's done where people start can kind of see that you're doing it, right? And it's kind of nice when you think about a community where you have people who are starting to sew, right? Then it's kind of like it's inspiring because you know these are people who are practicing the precepts. They've, they're going, moving forward towards a public, uh, public declaration of their commitment and vow to live on this path. So it's kind of a wonderful thing to, to, as a community, to support and to feel nourished by, to feel supported by when we see our uh, fellow Sangha mates taking up this path. So that's the Jukai. It means take, giving and receiving precepts. In Japan, they do have a ceremony, a Jukai ceremony, which is, it's like a, it's a short ceremony where sometimes hundreds of people show up at the Buddhist temple and receive precepts. They don't sew a robe. They just, you know, they publicly say the vows. It's kind of, um, in a sense, what we do for full moon ceremonies. And we invite everybody to come to full moon ceremonies to do a call and response of receiving precepts, right? The, the Bodhisattva full moon ceremony is a precept giving ceremony. 
So the Jukai in Japan is kind of like that. It's a little bit longer than a full moon ceremony, right? But it doesn't involve, well, let me just back up. It's not an ordination. Jukai is not an ordination. So what we are calling the ceremony, the ceremony that we are doing today is an ordination ceremony. So we will have four new baby Buddhas, <laughs> uh, ordinees or, or ordinands. The name of the ceremony, uh, there are two kinds of ordination ceremonies. One is a lay ordination ceremony, and then there is a priest or monk monastic ordination ceremony. And there's not very much difference actually between the two of them, right? The precepts are the same. You might say that there's a, you know, a great difference between the two of them in some sense, but ultimately there's no difference between these ceremonies and between the priest, there's no difference between the precepts that are taken. The lay initiation ceremony is for home stayers, people who are making this commitment and they're doing it from home. Right? As a lay person, you are uh, not leaving home behind. You know, you're staying within this world, within all the commitments of, of your family, of, you know, your communities, all of that. You're, you know, from the position of staying home, you attain the way. In a priest ordination, it's a home leaving ceremony. So Zaike Tokudo is the lay ordination ceremony. And it's basically staying home and attaining the way through this ordination. And Shuke Tokudo is leaving home to attain the way. And that's, you know, uh, putting aside the affairs of the, you know, of the world and going into uh, monastic life. Right? That's uh, uh, Shuke or priest uh, ordination. But as I said, the, the commitment is to live by these precepts. That is the vow. And you do it, most especially, you do it for all beings. So when we just come and sit, you know, maybe as a new practitioner, the concern is how do I wake up, right? How do I manage my crazy mind <laughs> and all my karmic conditioning and habit energy that causes me to do various things that actually doesn't serve maybe me, maybe doesn't serve other people as well, but, you know, sometimes when people come to practice, they come out of their own suffering, right? And that's kind of how it has to be. Kind of like, oh, you know, I'm suffering. This is hard. How do I live a, a life where my suffering is alleviated, right? If you're gripped in your own suffering, it's very hard to be of benefit to others, right? But as we practice and we start being able to nourish our own minds, right, to find that stability and groundedness within our zazen, then we can start asking the larger question of how do I live for the benefit of others, right? How do I identify, you know, and maybe, maybe I, this, this is kind of where we get tricky, like how do I identify my own habit energy, right? You know, it's not an intellectual practice. It's not like after you sit zazen, you're going to whip out your notepad and be like, okay, note to self. I'm impatient. I do these other things that are, you know, not so wholesome. You know, it's not, a, it's, that's not what it is, right? But we start to notice where we kind of fall off our cushion. 
as we're sitting, we notice where our mind gets dragged to, maybe even repeatedly, right? Sometimes it's, uh, it's even easier to tell when something happens repeatedly, because it's like, oh, look, I have that tendency. You know, how do, we, how do we manage all of that internally for ourselves, but then, you know, how do we bring that out into the world, right? In a way that is non, uh, I guess I want to say, there isn't a, there isn't a, it, there's a path, but it's not a fixed path. It's not fixed through fixed views. Okay, so yeah, let me say a little bit about rules. Oftentimes when people think about precepts, they may think of them as commandments, right? Thou shalt. And that's, you know, that's fair. That's fair to think of them that way. It's not quite accurate though, but there is a sense, there's a, there's a way in which it's true, but then there's a way in which it's not true. And it's really, really not true. I'm gonna quote from Suzuki Roshi on, on the precepts and, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'll quote him and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So he's talking about rules like commandments, like the Ten Commandments. He's talking specifically about the Ten Commandments and the difference between that and precepts. Um, they're not supposed to be, let's see, those rules are not supposed to be man-made precepts like social rules or customs or rules of some special countries. It is something more than that. It is not man-made but based on a universal truth of the universe. <laughs> if so, so he's talking about, in this particular case, he's talking about the first grave precept, which is the precept of not killing. If so, it does just mean not to kill. Strictly speaking, we cannot kill anything. And then he laughs. You think you can do it, but it is impossible. He's talking from the ultimate perspective here. When we realize this, we will not kill anything. We will not try to kill anything because it is impossible. This is one way of observing the precept, do not kill. So do not kill is not just a matter of forcing something on others or empowering a person to do something or formality observation. It is something more than that. If you realize this fact that you cannot kill anything, then you will be free from dualistic activity of killing or not killing. So do not kill means to extend our life activity or our life. Do not kill means sometimes a lazy attitude, a lazy way of life. When you are lazy or when you are not <coughs> in your practice of killing Buddha, Buddha will not manifest itself. You are keeping Buddha within yourself without doing anything. That is actually to kill Buddha or to kill you are keeping Buddha within yourself without doing anything. Okay, he's talking about this, having an idea. That is actually to kill Buddha or to kill something. Not to kill means to do something with sincerity. That is the fundamental way of observing precepts. So precept observation is to do something with your utmost effort. And that is how you observe the 10 prohibitory precepts. There are often it just described as different ways of looking at the precepts. And again, I'm talking right now just about the grave, the 10 grave precepts. Sometimes uh, there is a way of looking at them literally, do not kill. And in that way, in that literal way, Suzuki Roshi is pointing out, they're impossible. It's impossible not to kill. 
right? From a literal perspective, just by being alive, we are killing. That's one perspective of the precepts. Another perspective is from the absolute perspective where there is no separation between uh, self and others. There's no separation between you and me. In such, in, from the, uh, the absolute perspective, there's no such thing as killing. How can there be killing when there's nothing killed and nothing, you know, nothing killing, nothing to be killed, right? How does killing uh, occur when you don't live within duality, right? And so in that way, he says, strictly speaking, we cannot kill anything. Somewhere in between the literal way of observing precepts and the absolute way, what is in the middle between them? How do we find that middle? Are we following a rule to find the middle? It's not that easy. It'd be easy if we had a rule we just followed. The middle way between them is sometimes called the way of skillful means, right? And skillful means um, is finding an appropriate response. You know, what is an appropriate response to this situation? And every situation is different, right? So in every situation, how do we show up and, and make the appropriate response? How do we do that? Well, number one, we sit a lot of zazen beforehand. <laughs> right? When we enter Buddha's mind, the mind of zazen, it's not having, it doesn't have fixed views, right? It's aware, clearly aware, and then makes an act, makes uh, action when an action is needed but not from deliberation and thinking and chewing, although that does happen, right? But where does the action, where does an appropriate response emerge from? Right? Does it come after deliberation? Does it come through intuition? Does it come out of wisdom? Does it come out of compassion? How do we know where it's coming from? If we're not observing, how do we know? Let me move a little bit to uh, saying a little bit about what happens during the ceremony itself, um, because I think it's important and it's not gonna be, uh, if you're at the ceremony, you'll see it, but um, I'm not gonna be making commentary on what's happening during the ceremony. So this is my opportunity to talk a little bit about it beforehand. One of the first things that happens, um, you know, after everything is set up, you know, people arrive. The first thing that happens in the ceremony, you know, we, we offer, we make offerings, we do bows, we let incense, we offer incense. But then together as a community, we chant. You know, we actually do an invocation and then we, we, um, we invite uh, and call upon Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And this is kind of a, a beautiful way of, you know, gathering our posse. <laughs> you can think of it as like you're gathering all of the people who support you, all of the beings, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and you're gathering all of those beings to come witness, come bear witness, right? And be here in support. It also includes our ancestors and our Dharma friends. So that's the first thing we do. And we do that as a community. We chant the names of Buddha. And then we move into uh, renunciation. What is this renunciation? It sounds sometimes like a scary word, 
right? What is it to renounce, right? When I first heard of renunciation, I was intrigued by the concept, being a, you know, a total hedonist. <laughs> I was intrigued by the concept of renunciation, what that means giving things up, right? If you, uh, if you didn't know already, um, I feel like I'm primarily a greed type. I think people sometimes divide themselves into like, well, I'm a greed, hate, or delusion type, and I think I'm a greed type. I have lots of stuff. That's a, that's a clear sign of a greed type. <laughs> but renunciation is a giving up, right? Now, what's it in service of, right? What's the mind that gives something up? What does it mean to give up? In practicing giving up, again, we find the middle way, right? Sometimes we end up giving up and giving up and giving up and we don't have a clear sense of ourselves, right? So then maybe we need to, uh, you know, find out what our own personal boundaries are, right? Renunciation isn't about making yourself a doormat, okay? However, it is, in a sense, renunciation is about relinquishing our attachments, especially the attachments that do not serve uh, the benefit of all beings, including ourselves, right? So it's giving up our attachments. It's giving up greed and hatred and delusion as much as we can, right? We have to see it in order to give it up, maybe. So it's, it's relinquishing um, our limited views and it's surrendering, right? Renunciation is about surrendering to something and sometimes this is scary to people, especially growing up in a very individualistic society like our own. Like, what does it mean to surrender, right? Well, you're surrendering to your Buddha nature. You're surrendering to your vow to live uh, in awakening. Sometimes renunciation, um, I remember one of my first teachers, Tia Strozer, talking about, asking her about renunciation. And um, I think she said it publicly in a talk. She said, oh, yeah, renunciation. Renunciation, it's actually about giving up everything, giving up all of it. There's actually no stone uh, left unturned in renunciation. That was kind of scary. But, you know, for those of you who know Tia Strozer, I know many of you have practiced with her. Uh, she's, a little, she's a fierce one. <laughs> and, um, yeah, giving up everything which means, you know, sometimes it's incredibly difficult to giving up your, your, your fixed identity, giving up what we call me, mine, I, right? Giving over, giving over. Who are we giving it over to? We're giving it over to Buddha. We're giving it over to an awakened mind, right? In the ceremony, renunciation is symbolized by cutting the hair. And you'll see if you're at the ceremony that there is the part where there's a little, you know, just a little snipping that goes on as a, a symbol of renunciation. After that part of the ceremony, then the ordinands will be receiving a new name. This is what's called the Dharma name. And uh, some people use their Dharma names in, um, you know, just because they, they feel like it. Other people don't. It's, there's no rule to whether you do or do not use your Dharma name. But a Dharma name is kind of like your, your Buddhist name. My Dharma name is Unzan Doshin. And that was given to me by my teacher. And it means cloud mountain uh, path of the heart. That's my Dharma name. 
So all the ordinands will receive a Dharma name and then they'll also receive their robe. This is that uh, giving and receiving of Jukai, right? They sew their own robe and then they give it to the teacher who writes on it, who writes their Dharma name on the back of the Rakasu and then gives it back to them. And it has now, they've given it and they've received it back. And then they, you know, they get to wear it. After receiving the Rakasu, then they're getting ready to receive the precepts. Um, I think some places they give the precepts before the Rakasu, which sometimes I think makes sense, more sense, but, um, but this is how we do it here. Um, before receiving the precepts, there is another stage, which is the stage of confession and repentance. And um, I didn't grow up in a uh, uh, much of an authoritarian religious background. I mean, it was Catholic, so there was some of that for sure. Um, but I didn't maybe uh, inherit some of the uh, some of the wounding that some people, you know, have around words like confession and repentance. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm using these words. I think when Kosho uh, uh, was messing around with different chants, I think he changed the words confession and repentance to um, a vowel and returning, right? In particular, because there are, um, you know, those words confession and repentance can bring up, you know, some uh, very difficult feelings for some people. So I just want to um, acknowledge that the importance of confession and repentance, and we do this all the time. If you've had spent any time at AZC, maybe not during the pandemic, but um, beforehand, we're constantly confessing and repenting, right? Every time we say, um, um, you know, all my ancient twisted karma, right? We're, we're saying, you know, all of my own, you know, crap, basically, all the stuff, you know, my, my twisted karma, all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through my body, my speech, and my mind, I now fully avow, right? That is confession and repentance right there, right? We're bringing up, we're calling forth all the things that maybe we don't like about ourselves, maybe that we've, you know, mistakes that we've made, right? And there's something very purifying of doing this for oneself, right? By, by turning towards with a compassionate, wise heart and acknowledging and saying, you know, I vow to do better. This is my wish, right? My wish is to uh, rise above my, you know, the petty things I've, I've done in the past, you know, wh whatever your particular brand, um, you know, or flavor of hindrances, right? We all have our own, you know, special cocktail <laughs> of hindrances that we mix up for ourselves, right? Whatever it is, whether, you know, it's being, you know, uh, you know, angry all the time or saying, saying things that are hurtful or being passive aggressive, any, whatever it is, right? When we say those words, we are turning towards all of it with a kindly, in a kindly way, right? With this compassion and with wisdom, right? We're gathering it all together and saying, oh, all this stuff, I want to do better. It's my intention to, you know, 
to step out of my limited ways and into um, my true nature, which is vast and beautiful and all-encompassing and a wellspring of appropriate responses. So when we do confession and repentance, we're setting ourselves up. This is a kind of a, a purification of this body and mind. Then we go into the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, starting with taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That's the first three. Then the pure precepts. Pure precepts are always, um, you know, people, people are really uh, happy to get behind the pure precepts because they're so, maybe because they're very general. <laughs> so the pure precepts are, uh, I vow to refrain from evil, right? Pretty much, I think we can all get behind that, right? <laughs> Especially if you get to decide what evil is. <laughs> I vow to refrain from all evil. And then the second one, I vow to, sometimes it's uh, called, I vow to do all good. Um, we chant it as, I vow to, how do we do, I vow to live in enlightenment, right? It's the second one. Also pretty, uh, pretty easy to do. I mean, not pretty easy to do, pretty, do, pretty easy to say <laughs> that we want to do that, right? And then the third one, I vow to live for the benefit of all beings. And that's, um, you know, that's a big one. I vow to live for the benefit of all beings. You know, there's a big uh, spectrum that sometimes we all, you know, we all fall upon the spectrum between um, being really self-concerned to the exclusion of others or being really concerned about others to the exclusion of self, right? So just to say that when one says, I vow to live for the benefit of all beings, it includes self and other, right? So it means balance. It means balancing. Um, and I would say that, um, for the most part, mm, for the most part, we know how to be self-concerned. So sometimes we need to stretch a little bit in terms of the being concerned for others, right? Some people may be growing up in a, uh, in a way that, you know, led for them being massive caretakers. Maybe they need to, you know, pick up the, how do I live for my own benefit? You know, how do I include myself in all beings, right? But mostly, I think we're, you know, the way we're built, we know how to be concerned about ourselves. <clears throat> so upon taking these three pure precepts, uh, we move into the grave, the 10 grave precepts, which I'll just uh, read out to you now. The first one is, I vow not to kill. I vow not to steal. I vow not to misuse sexuality. I vow not to lie. I vow not to, uh, I think it's cloud the mind, cloud the mind. Um, I vow it's, it's intoxication, mind and body of self or other. I vow not to slander. I vow not to praise self at the expense of other people. I vow not to be possessive of anything or I vow to practice generosity. I vow not to indulge in anger or not to harbor ill will. And I vow not to slander the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so those are the 10 grave precepts that we were talking about earlier that are not quite commandments. Now during the ceremony, um, 
the ordinands are given, you know, are asked this question, right? They're repeatedly asked this question. Will you, are you vowing to do this? You know, will you do this? And they have to say, well, they don't have to. But part of the ceremony is them saying, yes, I will. And um, in case people don't hear somebody say that, yes, I will, we ask again, will you vow to do this? Yes, I will. And in case it's, you know, maybe even a little bit tentative, we even ask, do you vow to do this, not just in this lifetime, but in future lives? And the ordinance say, yes, yes, I will. So this is a big deal. And it is a, as I mentioned before, it is a public declaration. It's not just a, um, you know, uh, a passing thought of like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Right. <clears throat> and it, um, you know, the, the connection between these precepts of, of living in this way, I already mentioned the connection between that and Zazen, right? It's, um, you know, preparing the ground for awakening when we, you know, we prepare our seat and we take our seat and sit down and uh, observe our minds, right? It's from that mind that is soft and supple and quiet and still that these appropriate response can emerge from, right? And so the connection between observing precepts and our sitting practice, you know, these are, these are inherently connected. Suzuki Roshi says, um, the precept observation is very important for Zen practice. If we eat too much, we cannot sit. If we do not have enough sleep, we cannot sit. So physically and mentally, you have to adjust your life so that you can sit. It's kind of funny. He makes it sound like, you know, the precepts, following these precepts is really about like, you know, clearing the path for you to be able to just be a Buddha. <laughs> but basically, that's what it is. It's clearing up things. And oftentimes the precepts, you know, we practice the precepts so that we don't have to live a life of regret. Right? You all know, we all know what regret feels like. How sometimes debilitating, maybe even further than regret, guilt, right? shame you know how debilitating those emotions those those inner feelings are so if we practice the precepts and we wholeheartedly throw our effort surrendering to our vow right it's not a guarantee that we won't have regret of course right? but in each moment you know to say yes i will yes i will that is my intention that is my wish that is my vow and um, so Suzuki, let me just get back to Suzuki's quote, quote. He says, this is a very important point, this point about how he, having to adjust your life so that you can sit. Zen or Buddhism is actually the way of life and the way of life is the precepts. To live is how to observe precepts. It is not some rules of 16 or 250 or 500 there must be an innumerable number of precepts. So it is necessary for us to have this full understanding of the precepts and to make every effort to observe them. And then getting to this question of which, what, with what mind do I observe the precepts? He says, this is a kind of tricky question. And then he goes into you know, this question of like, with what mind do I observe the precepts 
is it the mind that is trying to get it right? Is it the mind that's concerned with how I look? Is it the mind that's concerned with whether I'm a good person? Right? Because while all of that is uh, very natural for us to do, right? That's not really what he's talking about when he's talking about observing the precepts. He says, with, uh, if you say, with this kind of mind, I observe the precepts, then it means your mind is separated from the observation of the precepts. Precepts are there and your mind is over there. That is dualistic understanding. The same thing will happen if you practice Zazen with your mind. The same misunderstanding will happen to you. Zen practice is a practice which happens within your mind, within your big mind. Precept observation is how our life goes in its true sense. That is precept observation. Precepts. Your life goes in that way automatically. That is precept observation. So if you think the precepts are some particular rules which were set up by Buddha, that is wrong understanding. So he, he, you know, this, this point cannot be overemphasized, right? This idea that um, you all know about your karmic hindrances, right? Living the life of karma is kind of like being on autopilot and just, you know, going, living your life in accordance with your, just your habit energy with however, you know, you happen to be raised, you know, and whatever reactivity or, you know, maybe some good things in there too, right? But um, you can have good habits and bad habits. Um, but if we live our life according to our own karma, um, it's a very different life to be lived than if we turn our life over to dharma and live from a dharmic consciousness as opposed to our karmic consciousness. So this is that renunciation. This is what we do when we sit zazen. This is how we observe precepts, right? We start to notice, you know, and it's not like we, we don't shove aside our, uh, you know, our small mind. It's not like we get rid of it, right? Um, rather than getting rid of it, we, um, you know, it's not, we're not annihilating our ego, right? That's not what egolessness really means. Um, you know, actually, you know, we have to forget egolessness too. Right. So holding both, right? Both and. It's paradoxical. That's why you came to Zen, right? <laughs> you knew you'd, you'd find paradox. Our life is a paradox. Right? And it's in that discomfort of like, well, which one is it? Which one is it? You know, our mind, we really are, our mind really wants to glom onto something and say, oh, it's this. And then I can relax. Right? But um, this practice isn't, isn't, it's about finding relaxation in that tension, right? In the tension of how do I act? What is appropriate? Oh, I have this, this kind of rule, but it's not a commandment. You know, what's, what's the, what should I do in this situation? And how do I go about asking all of this with a mind that's uh, grounded in compassion, that's uh, open to wisdom? So that is, uh, that's what we're up to today. And um, I, hope, uh, I hope people can join us. Um, this is my first ordination ceremony. So I'm, um, I'm feeling particularly nervous <laughs> and, uh, and very excited. Um, it's, a, it's a great gift to be able to share 
um, this, this beautiful practice uh, for the sake of all beings waking up. All right. Thank you all very much for being here. And I wonder if anyone has any comments or questions. Um, Marco, I'll ask something. Good. Thank you. Yes, I really appreciated this this uh, talk. It's always good to be reminded, and I really appreciate the precept discussions that we have. They're um, really great. And I was was thinking of one way which we've talked before about the the precepts being, and you touched on something today that was maybe the same thing, but um, the idea that the precepts uh, in, I think this has been in the discussion of them not being like commandments or being commandments. Um, that they're like the natural activity of a bodhisattva. So like to think of them not as something you're straining for, but that would come up somehow naturally as a bodhisattva. Do you, do you want is yeah. that at all? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, many, many of us have heard of this, right? That this is that the precepts are uh, descriptions of, a, of an enlightened being's activity. This is how an enlightened being just naturally is, right? They don't steal. They don't harbor ill will. Right? They don't speak harshly about other people. Right? Uh, that doesn't make them passive. They can, you know, bodhisattvas and buddhas are, can be great activists, right? Working on behalf of all beings. Um, but it, it's interesting because it does, um, you know, to have that description of this is, these are the marks of enlightened beings. Um, you know, we take up this practice and we try it out. One of the things also I just want to mention about precept practice Right. Uh, many of you are familiar with the line from Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Right. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away and your, uh, your true nature emerges. Right. This is your Buddha nature. Right. To study, it starts with studying the self. And um, what better way to study yourself than to try on precept practice, right? Because then you really get to see, right? Ooh, you know, I just realized that I'm like talking harshly about somebody. Hmm, that's not enlightened activity. Wow, what's going on for me that I felt the need to do that, right? And this is a, a way of, again, not blaming ourselves, but like having these little trailheads to, you know, what's unsettled within me? you know, that I need, that may need taking, tending to, right? There might be a part of me that feels very wounded and feels the need to like, you know. <laughs> um, so how do I tend to that? How do I include that, that small self in my, you know, in my compassionate, you know, field um, so that I can, t I can nurture that so that I don't necessarily, you know, so that I don't act in a way that's going to cause harm. So thank you for, Thank you for bringing that up, Karen. I will say also just the, you know, one, pre one precept that come, everything comes down to um, is do no harm. Ahimsa. 
do no harm. Uh, anything else? Anyone else? I wonder for those of you who have received precepts before, um, if you might say something about what it was like to receive the precepts in your own experience. You know, what was it like for you to, to, have, to have precept practice in your life today? Or what was it like for you when you were studying the precepts? What fears did you have? What questions? I'm curious. Sherry. Um, the most um, memory I have is the actual sewing of Rakasu because it was uh, this gathering together of, there were four of us that were sewing and there were other people sewing as well, but not uh, intending to do Jukai at that time. But um, our teacher, the sewing teacher was Anita. I don't know if you remember her, but um, she uh, learned a lot of sewing technique from Blanche. That was her uh, source of all this wondrous sewing that she taught us. And uh, so the, the sewing was really the best. And, uh, but Flint did our Jukai, Flint and Barbara, and uh, it, was, it was very touching. And uh, at one point I thought, oh my God, what have I committed to? <laughs> yeah, it was almost overwhelming. Uh, but um, yes, anyway, it was just a beautiful ceremony a long time ago. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Some people really can't stand the sewing part or they, or they uh, actually what I've seen more frequently than, than anything is, you know, people who are not necessarily, they don't think of themselves as being very dexterous or they have big fingers or something, you know, something like that, that sewing these little stitches is like, you know, super frustrating. But I will say that I've never seen anybody who did not, uh, in their sewing, find at some point that they gave over to it, right? And found it actually becomes a tranquility practice. The sewing itself is a tranquility practice. It's interesting. I just saw an article recently um, about uh, top 10 things that you can do to calm down during, you know, this in particular, it was about the sort of the challenging scene that we're the stage that we're on this challenging times and what can we do during the pandemic during civil um, civic unrest during uh political uh just political intrigue and you know fear how do we how do we settle ourselves and one of the top ones you know i thought gardening would be really high on the list and gardening was like number seven but like sewing or knitting crocheting like something that is uh repetitive actions with your hands that requires you to focus, right? This is what a tranquility practice looks like, right? It's mindless, right? You're not like sitting there trying to figure stuff out, but you have a mission and you're totally wholeheartedly doing it. Right? And in sewing class in particular, we actually, you know, we offer incense before class, we, we offer bows, we chant, and then we sit down and sew. So even, even during the, just taking a sewing class, uh, when you're sewing your rakasu, it's, um, you know, as, as Sherry mentioned, you know, it's something that you do together with other people. And um, it in and of itself becomes its own nourishment. Even if you have, you know, big fingers that are not very dexterous. <laughs>